with that said, why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray and then we'll dive into his word. Father, we thank you that uh, your word indeed does contain the truth we need to live and to live rightly in this very fallen world of ours. And God, if I don't miss my guess, there are many of us who come in here today with some fears, some anxieties, some concerns about our lives. We live in tumultuous times. I mean, not since, oh God, almost 70 years ago have we seen an economy so threatened in our country. And that's scary for many of us. And Lord, we're on the verge of some change of leadership in our country. And that concerns many of us from multiple angles. God, we have numerous fears in our own personal lives that are being affected by the economy and other things, and maybe even just many, many things, Lord. And so we come here into church today, and we need, a, we need something from your word. We need a reminder at the very least, some truth at the very most, about what our lives can and should be as we follow you, and what's different about being followers of Jesus Christ. And so, God, meet us in our fears, meet us in our anxieties, meet us with our concerns here today as we uh, look to your word now. May we all walk out of here, God, uh, at the very least encouraged, at the very most changed from the people that we've been. We thank you for this hope that we have. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, I got, I got to let you a little bit into my world of what I deal with as a pastor day in and day out to, to appreciate where we're going here this morning. Um, for the last 20 or 30 years in church circles, something has uniquely happened that, that wasn't happening, say, maybe for 50 years before that. And that is that pastors and church leaders, boards and committees have gotten really into vision or mission statements for the church. Have you ever noticed that? Like, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, nobody really cared, nor really, you know, did the church have to really have a vision or mission statement. But in the last 20 or 30 years, it's been really vogue for a church to come up with some scintillating, engaging type of vision or mission statement. And if you've looked closely at churches, they've been kind of all over the map. I mean, some of them are really goofy and downright stupid, if you ask me. I mean, you know, there's one church I saw years ago that back in Chicago that their vision statement, and I kid you not, was that we want to be a rockin' place for Jesus. And I thought, oh, that's rich. That's meaningful, you know. And they even had a sub-motto that if the music is too loud, you're too old. Isn't that encouraging? And so, you know, I look at that and I think, well, I'm not sure you've really caught on what a vision statement would be. Other vision statements that I've run uh, across over the years have been the kind that, I don't know, just didn't seem to be all that clear. One church I, I was uh, looking at years ago said uh, that our vision is to bring meaning to life's most important relationships. And I thought, well, you know, that's kind of cool, but what are you saying? I mean, what does that mean? And then there's the more usual ones that you've heard. We've used the word glorify. You notice that for the last 20 or 30 years in church. You know that our vision is to bring glory to God. Well, that's a biblical term, but what does that mean? You know, or we want to love God and love others. All right, where are we going with that? You know, or the most popular phrase today, I mean, the most popular mission state or vision statement across the board is that we want to develop fully devoted followers of Christ. How many of you have heard that phrase, fully devoted followers of Christ? That's kind of the in vogue vision statement for a church. And don't get me wrong, I don't have a problem with vision statements at all. In fact, I'm going to share with you one today of what our elders and our staff have come up with as we dream biblically about what God would have for us in the future here at Scottsdale Bible Church for the next season of our ministry. But I do have two concerns. 
about any vision statement that would come out of the church and that I've experienced over the last 20 years of being a pastor. My first concern is, is the, does the vision statement that you have, is it biblically core? In other words, is it what the Bible is really saying at core about what you and me should be about? Or is it just some more culturally entrenched, cool, scintillating, engaging kind of phrase? Do you know the difference? In other words, you can come up with a vision statement that sounds great and that everybody rallies around, but if it's not what God in heaven is really after, then who cares? And so the question we should be asking is, what is God really after in His people? What's He dreaming about? What's His vision for us as a church? Is it biblically core? And then the second thing that I've had a concern about with vision statements over the years is, is it rich and pointed? In other words, do we all latch on to it together and give a hearty amen and go, boy, I really want to give my life for that and rally around that and that we know what to do with it week in and week out, right? I mean, that's sometimes the problem with the word glorify. You know, from the great Westminster Confession, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. They knew what that meant back in that day. I'm not sure many of us do today. And so we go, amen, amen, glorify God. But do you have any idea what that word means? Many of us don't. And so if that's a part of our vision statement, we have to wonder, you know, what are we to do with that? That's my second concern. And so years ago, I started asking myself when people were pressuring me, and I mean pressuring me to have a vision statement, you know, what's the vision for the church? And so years ago, I was on one of my study breaks and I was praying and thinking about life and the church and all of that. And I was asking myself, you know, if God is God and he is, then I would think in the Scriptures He would tell us like over and over and over again what His vision is for the church, right? Like He wouldn't hide it in Jeremiah 31 or something like that or in Malachi 3, but He might just sort of spell it out for us what what He's interested in, in you and I and in the church and what we're about. So I asked myself, what are some of the repeated themes that God gives us, especially in the New Testament? And you know what two words I thought of immediately? This won't surprise you. Are the words faith and love. The twin ideas of faith and love. It just seems to be that that's what the Bible talks about a lot. So I engaged, I started on a a kind of a journey, a search of plumbing the depths of what these two phrases, faith and love, are all about in the New Testament. And because I somewhat know the Greek language, that's what they teach you in seminary, Hebrew and Greek, the two original languages that the Bible is written in, I knew that the Greek word for faith is pistis, And that the uh, Greek word for love, at least the main one, is agape. And so I did a New Testament word search on these two words. And i got to tell you, the results blew me away. Hold off on all the clicks on the PowerPoint, guys. Just I'll I'll tell you when to click. The results blew me away. i got to tell you, I was just blown away with what pistis and agape are about in the New Testament. Let me share some of these things with you. I found that faith and love, pistis and agape, appeared together in the same sentence. Now get this. 26 times in 14 different New Testament books, almost two-thirds of the New Testament epistles, from Corinthians to Revelation, 14 times in 20, or 14 books, 26 times in the same sentence, faith and love appear. Think about that. I think God's trying to say something to us. And not only that, but it's broad in the New Testament authors that use this. Paul, James, and John all have faith and love appear in the same sentence in their epistles. Peter is the only one who doesn't do that, and that's for different reasons. He still communicates the same ideas. 
And then as if all of this were not enough, what really blew me away is that these usages of pistis and agape, again, faith and love, in the same sentence, almost always appeared toward the beginning or the end of each epistle, precisely when the author wanted to communicate some bottom line truth about what God is after in his people. And I thought, now we're getting somewhere. So let me read some of these instances for you and see if you can pick up what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, But now remain faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Galatians 5, 6, toward the end of Galatians, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but only faith working through love. Ephesians 1, 5, For this reason I too, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and the love that you have, for all the saints. Colossians 1.4 We always give thanks since we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for the saints. And then 1 Thessalonians 1.3 We constantly bear in mind your work of faith and your labor of love. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 We ought to always give thanks to God for you because your faith is greatly enlarged in the love you have toward each other. 1 Timothy 1.5 But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 2 Timothy 1.13 Retain the standard of sound words which you heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Titus 3.15 Greet all who are with you with love and faith. Philemon 1.5 Because I hear of your love and faith. Revelation 2.19 I know your deeds, your love and faith. Are you starting to get the picture? Like on and on and on, like a scratch CD, the New Testament tells us that love and faith are core. It's what God dreams about when He dreams about what your and mine life should be about. He always defaults. He goes back to this idea of your faith, where it's placed and what it's about, as well as the love factor that exists in your lives. So I'm studying this and I'm going, wow, I don't think I ever saw it that clear before. And it hit me that what God is after, look up here on the screen, now give me a click here, guys, that what God is after in the lives of His people is to create a community of Christ followers. That's what we are, just a community of people. Whether they have a big building or not, whether they got tons of programs or not, I'm not sure God's all impressed with that. He wants a community, an organic group of Christ followers, now get this, that are marked by an unwavering faith and an unconditional love. If you've ever wondered what God wants from you week in and week out, what He dreams about that Scottsdale Bible Church would continue to become, it's simply a group of people who are marked, who are known for in their community as being people with an unwavering faith and an unconditional love to those around them. In other words, it's this unwavering faith that God is after combined with an unconditional love. This is what He dreams about. As far as I can tell, this is His vision for His church. And yet i got to tell you, folks, as I've understood this then even more fully over the years, and I want to try to help you understand it more fully today. Now, whenever I think about this, my heart starts to pump. My adrenaline starts to flow as I start to get excited about what God can do through you and me if we, if we start to shoot for this unwavering faith and this love of another kind. And so let's take a moment right now to define our terms, because I know some of you are thinking right now, well, yeah, 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 unwavering faith and unconditional love, but, you know, what's that about? I mean, I mean, what do you mean by that? Let's define our terms, and I think you'll start to 
maybe see what God is getting at here. First, consider the phrase unwavering faith. And here's my definition of the kind of faith that I think have, that you understand when you add up all the New Testament passages. And it's simply this. An unwavering faith is a consistent and stubborn trust in the Trinitarian God that is not hampered by circumstances or conditions. It's a consistent, stubborn trust, but not without direction, in the Trinitarian God, now get this, that is not hampered by circumstances and or conditions. So look at what Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6 says. Hebrews 11, as some of you right know, is the famous hall of faith. I mean, it's all about faith. And it gives us a definition for faith right off the bat. And it says this, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that rewards those who earnestly seek him. I love how it says there that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, it's an unshakable confidence concerning all the things that are on the horizon. It's a rock-solid conviction about the things that you and I do not see. That's faith. It's unwavering in its disposition. It's unhindered in its ability to trust God with faithfulness and with obedience. That's what faith is. And when you check out the rest of the New Testament, you start to see, well, yeah, that's exactly how they define faith. I mean, Paul would say in Ephesians 4 of faith that our faith is not the kind that, remember this, it's tossed about by every wind and wave of teaching. That's why we say unwavering. Or as Hebrews would go on to say, our faith is not the kind that shrinks back when it confronts difficult circumstances, but it's the kind that perseveres and moves on. I mean, that's the kind of faith that God wants in you and me, the kind that attaches no conditions to its ability to exercise it by placing it in the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And make no mistake, folks, unwavering faith is the kind of faith God is looking for in His followers. It's the kind that pleases Him, and that as Hebrews 11.6 says here, that He even rewards. So I was thinking this week, as I was interacting with some business people about the economy and all that's going on right now, I thought, what an incredible opportunity that you and I have to demonstrate or even to discern whether or not we have an unwavering faith in this God that we serve. I mean, did our faith go up and down with the Tao? No, it doesn't. Does our faith go up and down with our house values? No, it doesn't. Does our faith ride the unemployment statistics? No, it doesn't. Does our faith have to be changed at all by the results of a debate? Not at all. In other words, you're starting to see there's two kingdoms in this world, what the Bible calls the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God should always transcend the kingdom of this world in the life of a follower of Jesus. So when the kingdom of this world is rocked, and many times our lives are going to be rocked, God says, I hope you have an unwavering faith. I hope that your heart and your mind, your emotions and your thoughts are tied to the kingdom of God and that your sights are focused on Him in an unwavering way. And so i got to ask you, what shakes your faith today? I mean, we all have something. Is it a bad economy for you? Is it job issues? Is it a marriage that you're struggling with? Is it kids that rebel and make bonehead decisions? Are it friends that let you down? Are they health problems, emotional struggles? I mean, what is it for you? Think of it right now. 
And then please realize that what God is shooting for in your life, what He dreams about and desires more than anything else, is that your faith over time, because it sure is a process, that over time becomes stronger and more pointed on Him and stronger to the point that it is not shaken by the things of this world. And though it takes a lifetime to learn it, this is what God is shooting for in you. It's what He's shooting for in His church. Now hang on to that. We're going to put this together in a minute. Before going further, let me now define for you what we mean by unconditional love. And believe it or not, folks, this one is more tricky. I mean, this is a lot more tricky. And one of the reasons that it's more tricky is because, as I've said before to you on different occasions, our world like talks about love all the time, don't we? I mean, we write novels about it. We sing songs about it. We send greeting cards about it. We say it to our kids and our family all the time to the point that we've worn the word out, watered it down, and stripped it, at least in our culture, of much of its substance and meaning. And whenever you do that with a word, like we've done with the word love, what you have to do to recapture its meaning is go back to this book. Amen? You need to go back to this book and say, okay, well then what does God say about, in this instance, love? And when you do that, you start to realize that the way that our world has defined love... (laughs) and the way that God has defined love, are not always the same. Like, not even close. So if you brought a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, look up here on the screen and, and check out what it says here. I, I love this. This is God's description of the kind of love that He's looking for in you and me. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And then it's fascinating. If you look at verse 8 then, it gives three little words as it goes on. It says, love never fails. Or in this translation, love never ends. Love never fails. And we've got to ask the question, fails at what? Well, fails at the things that Paul just mentioned here. In other words, love never fails at being patient and kind, at not envying or boasting. It doesn't fail at being uh, not being rude or arrogant. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Love never fails at bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. And the fascinating thing about this passage to me, now don't miss this, is that there's nothing in this description about love that centers on you. Do you notice that there? In other words, these are all about activities that you and I do that center on other people, right? In other words, love by its very nature then is an other-focused entity. It's all about how you view and treat others in a self-sacrificing, other-centered way. And so unlike our world, where love tends to be conditional and tends to be the kind of love that, hey, if you don't reciprocate, then I'm not going to love you. God's love is patterned after how He treats us. In other words, we deserved hell because of our sin, but He gave us Christ as the forgiveness of our sin and now patiently journeys with us even in the midst of all of our struggles, mistakes, and sin. That's love. And God says, now that's the kind of love, unconditional, agape kind of love, I want you to have for those around you. And so once you get this, guys, here's my best shot at giving you a biblical definition of love. You ready for this? And it's this. 
that unconditional love is the kind of love that always acts toward another with their best interest in mind, selfless and sacrificial. If you've been looking for a good, workable definition of love, this is it. Love is a kind of entity that always acts toward another person with their best interest in mind, and it's marked by being selfless and sacrificial. And so it considers always what's best for another person, not you. What they need in any given moment, not what you want or desire. That's love. And then it acts accordingly. And that's why, by the way, 1 Corinthians 13 uses words like kind and patience and truth, giving people what they need in any given moment without conditions, the same way that God gives you these things at any given moment without conditions. And please don't misunderstand this. This is kind of tricky. And that is that this is not some soft, wimpy, get-yourself-run-over kind of love that has no teeth, no. It's a kind of love that can be tender at one moment, but then tough in the next moment, like speaking truth or setting tough boundaries. It's just that it does all of this out of a core motivation and mindset that considers what is best for the other person, what they need from you at any given moment, rather than oneself. Please see, it has no conditions on whether you act loving or not. You will. And whether it's being tender and kind or speaking tough truth in a timely way, it's unconditional in its tenacity to consider what is best for the person that you're interacting with. That's agape love. It's the kind of love that Jesus has for you and me, and it's now the kind of love that He asks us to have for each other. I want to share with you a story of something that happened to me about half my life ago, 22 years ago, in which this kind of love first entered into my life, at least when I first realized it. I was 22 years old. I had just graduated from college and I was heading into seminary. And I was at a very, very difficult time in my life emotionally. I was a mess of fears, a mess of anxieties, struggling even with some depression for the first time in my life. And I was very, very afraid of the future and what it would hold for me. But off to graduate school, I went from Cleveland to Chicago to graduate school. And I had to get there early to spend six weeks in a crash course on Greek in order to get into enter into seminary. And I was such a mess internally because of my fears and a lot of things that were going on inside of me that and struggling with anxiety and depression so significantly that I could only study Greek for about a half an hour. Then I have to get up and walk for half an hour and then study for half an hour and then walk for half an hour. I mean, I was on the verge of a breakdown really, at that time in my life. And I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that as a young man, I struggled with a lot of pent-up fears. And, uh, and one night, I, I just reached a boiling point. It was just enough. I was alone in this large city, very lonely, no friends, nothing going on. And, uh, and I needed to reach out to somebody, but I didn't know who. Now, do you all remember when we didn't have cell phones? Can you remember back that far? So I didn't have a cell phone, so I couldn't call anybody. And there was no dorm. In my dorm, there was no payphone on the floor. So I jumped in my little Honda Accord. And do you all remember this thing called rain when it comes down real fast? You know, you don't know that here in Arizona. But back up north, like, just raining cats and dogs. I remember going out to my Honda. And I jump in it. And it's pouring down rain. And I drive about a mile to this deserted parking lot where there was a payphone. And I jump out. And I go to the payphone. And I pick up and I dial a collect call to the only safe place I knew, which was home, right? So I called my folks in Cleveland. And my dad picked up the phone. Now, my dad, as I've described him to you, is, is kind of one of these tough-minded lawyer-type guys. I mean, he's just, he's just a mental rock, kind of tough, not super emotional, unless he's angry, you know all the type, and that type of thing. And, and, and that's my father. 
But for some reason that night, his empathy factor was running on high. And so as I got on the phone with him, I immediately just broke down, started to cry and share with him just, you know, just what a mess I was and, and how discouraging this was. And the whole time he was just going, yeah, I, I know, I understand. It's, it's hard. And he was just really jiving with me and tracking with me. And after about 10 minutes of this, I, I said something that, uh, that changed the whole course of the conversation. I said, and you know, Dad, I just, I just don't think I can take it. I said, I don't think I can stay here. And I've been thinking maybe I should come home. And he didn't even skip a beat. He immediately on the other end of the line said, no, you're not coming home. And then he said, you're not welcome to come home because this is not your home. You've left your home. Your home is now in Chicago and that's where you're going to stay. And you are going to finish out these four years of seminary and then see what's next. I was absolutely stunned. I was like, well, I, uh, uh, you know, like, okay, bye, you know, and I hung up the phone. <laughs> and, and I walked through the rain back to my car and I got in and, and the anxiety turned to what? To anger. I mean, I was just so mad. I thought, Hi, what dad would do that to their kid? I thought, what, my mom's probably, I'm calling mom, my mom's probably crying on the other end right now. I thought, what dad would tell his kid he can't come? And I'm driving back to the seminary. I'll show him. I'm going to finish these four years of seminary. And I I mean, I just just couldn't believe he would do that to me. Four years later, I graduated from seminary. And it dawned on me, it's the later years of my life, what an incredible, incredible gift my dad gave me that night. Amen? I mean, I know many parents that are just so soft on their children. I know many parents that when a heartbeat would have just let the tug strings of their heart be pulled and said, oh, oh you know, you can come home. I mean, 22-year-olds live at home, right? I mean, you can come home. And, and yet my dad was going to have none of that. But I really believe that it was for my best interest he made that decision. I don't think that was easy. I don't think he enjoyed saying that. I don't think he got off the phone going, yay, the kid's not coming home. I think that he, he really struggled with that. And my dad, over the years, has, has loved me many times with my best interest in mind, not not his. And many of you as parents know exactly what we're talking about here, right? And that's what being a good parent is all about. God says He loves us that way, with our best interest in mind. Sometimes it's tough, sometimes it's tender. And He has commanded you and I, He wants us to be marked by this, to have that kind of love for each other and even those outside the fold. Jesus said at one point in his ministry this, he said, a new commandment I give you. Now you got to ask yourself, what do you mean new? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Pause right there. you got to be thinking, they were thinking, uh, Jesus, you read the Old Testament, talks about love. So like, what's this about a new commandment? Guys, give me a click here. So read on. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Oh, you're way off here, guys. Go back, uh, James, who's ever on the, the thing. Um, and find the, the verse there in John. Anyways, you'll find it. New commandment I give you, that you love one another. And, uh, and then he says this, Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. Therein lies the newness of this command. That as Jesus has loved us, we are to love one another. Now get this, then he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this brings us, guys, then to the key question that we need to ask in light of this unwavering faith and this unconditional love that is supposed to mark us as followers of Jesus. And now you can give me that click, guys. And it's simply this. Is are we, and I mean each of us individually and then together as a church, really and truly marked by these things? I mean, let's be honest. Do others 
who see us as disciples of Jesus Christ know us for having an unwavering faith and an unconditional love. I mean, are these things so obvious in your life and in mine that others distinguish us as followers of Jesus because of these things? That's the $10 question. Because as we've already established, this is what God dreams about for us. This is what he's shooting for in our our lives. It's his preferred future for us. It's his vision, if you will. Creating a community of Christ followers marked by unwavering faith and unconditional love. And you get the chance to demonstrate this, to show this day in and day out, Monday through Saturday. Now get this, in every decision that you make, In every interaction you have with people, I'm telling you, they're either going to see an unwavering faith and experience an unconditional love from you, or they're not. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's kindness to a service provider or you being a grouchy old nag. It doesn't matter whether it's your kid who's coming to you for something in in life and you're frustrated once again and how you're going to treat them. It doesn't matter if you're watching the the news and the Tao is plummeting where your heart resides and what you're trusting. Do you see how this works? The key question, the only question left, is what are each of us individually and then together as a church known for in our lives? So I want to wrap up by telling you a story. I want to wrap up by telling you a true story from history that might help you grab onto this or at least act as a challenge in your life. How many of you have ever heard of the famous Dutch expressionist painter Vincent van Gogh? Let's see a hand raise here. Gosh, I mean, just about everybody, right? And what's he most known for? Isn't he most known for, the, for the being crazy and cutting off the earlobe, right? I mean, everybody thinks of van Gogh, yeah, the wacko that cut off his ear. There's a lot more to van Gogh's life than just that. He lived only 37 years in the latter half of the 19th century. And for most of his life, he focused his pursuits. Now, you didn't know this. I'm becoming a pastor and a missionary. For the first 27 years of Van Gogh's life, he committed himself to being a pastor and a missionary. The only problem is is that he flunked out of theology school, he didn't make it as a pastoral assistant, and he didn't do too well as a missionary to the poor. And so, bummer for him for trying to go down that road. And so at age 27, last 10 years of his life, he decided he'd try his hand at painting, and he found his niche. And yet one of the things that Van Gogh struggled with all of his life was a severe form of depression which is probably why he didn't make it as a pastor or missionary. And so even as a Christian, raised in a Christian home and focusing most of his life on a relationship with Christ, Van Gogh struggled deeply and regularly with massive bouts of unrelenting depression. Some of you can relate to that. And this is seen in many of his paintings. And Scott McKnight, a professor of New Testament at North Park Seminary outside Chicago, tells the very interesting story about Van Gogh in his book, The Jesus Creed. And he tells the story of Van Gogh's fascination with the color yellow. You see, for Van Gogh, yellow evoked for him, every time he experienced it, a deep sense of God's love and truth. Whenever Van Gogh would paint or see yellow, it would well up for him the hope and warmth of God's love and the reality of his truth. And so in a very real way, yellow became known for Van Gogh as his God color. And so during one of Van Gogh's many bouts with depression, he painted a scene that has become known as the Starry Night. Look up here on the screen. Remember Don McLean back in the early 70s, that song, The Starry Starry Night? That's where this song was based after. And in this painting, which is obviously dark and nightlike, there are some liberal uses, you'll notice, of the color yellow. 
But you'll notice as well that it's mainly confined to nature in this painting. The moon, the stars, and the landscape. And it was during this time that Van Gogh writes about his life that God's truth was only experienced, his truth and love was only experienced in nature. And so you will notice that when you look very closely at this painting, give me another click here, guys, that that the church in this scene, which stands taller than all the other structures, now get this, has no yellow in it at all. It's about the only thing in the entire picture that doesn't have a hint of yellow. I mean, everything else has some yellow. Even many of the houses down there in the village has this idea of God's love and warmth. Only the church stands cold for Van Gogh in this painting. And that's because for him at that time in his life, he wasn't experiencing God's love and truth in the church or any of its extensions like the Bible or preaching or singing or fellowship. The starry night represents a very dark time in Van Gogh's life where the love and truth from God was only experienced like by hiking in the McDowell Mountains And that was just about it. Not much yellow other than that. But then two years later, very close to his death, Van Gogh painted another scene, this time using liberal amounts of yellow. Isn't this cool? This is called the raising of Lazarus. And it's obviously based on the biblical account in John where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Only this time, Van Gogh uses all kinds of yellow because he is in touch at this point in his life with the love and truth of God. I mean, he's flying high spiritually to the point that he even paints his own face on Lazarus there. I mean, he's just so in tune with this idea of the resurrection and of new life and what a God wants to give and bring to his life. And this is a positive painting all about yellow. Fascinating. Think about it. All of this surrounding one simple color tied to Van Gogh's experience or lack of experience of God's truth. And I think there's something very profound for this, for you, in this, for you and me. And that is simply this. Look up here on the screen. How much yellow then shines through in our lives as we seek and follow Christ? That's what I want to leave you with this morning. I mean, as you look up here on the screen, Which picture best represents your experience of God? Your trust in Him despite your circumstances and your love for Him that holds no conditions? And then by extension, which picture best represents what our lives display to those around you? I mean, let me ask you, is it full of yellow? God's truth and love founded in a consistent and stubborn faith in Him? Or is it as dark as night? Having yellow maybe in some place that leaks through, but other than that, Not much yellow when it comes to the spiritual side of your life. Which is it for you? Because i got to tell you, your elders and your pastoral staff and your new senior pastor pray and dream each week that God would continue to knit this place together into a mosaic that is all about yellow. That's all about His love, His truth that we trust in and that we exhibit to those around us. You know, it's sad. Many Christians are very confused today that they think that they're going to be known most for their heightened morality, right? Or for their certain theological distinctions or for having an activistic lifestyle or for your great church and worship programs and all these other things. And, you know, all those things are good and fine as they stand alone. They really are. I mean, it's great to have a heightened morality. It's great to have certain theological distinctions. It's wonderful to be activistic. It's nice to have a big church with lots of programs. But search the Word all you want. None of these things are core when it comes to what God wants you and me to be known for. What He wants us to be known for, quite simply and profoundly, 
is our unwavering faith in Jesus Christ and our unconditional love that we have for those around us. He says that's what's going to rock Scottsdale. That's what's going to rock Phoenix. That's what's going to change villages in Tanzania. That's what's going to help churches in Cairo, Egypt and Amman, Jordan. I mean, that's what he calls you and I to. And that's what's going to alter the course of our lives and change the composition of our human hearts. When we get in touch with that kind of love that induces that kind of faith as we all focus on Jesus together. I'm so excited where God is leading us. I got to let you know, as your pastor, you have my commitment that both personally in my life, this is what I'm seeking after. And then as I lead and pray about where God leads us, this is what I'm shooting for. I think it's what God's heart is about. I hope it's yours as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, you have clearly outlined for us, I mean, over and over and over again in the word, uh, what you want our lives to be about. And though, Lord, there's lots of things that you add to the love and faith equation, things like truth and obedience and faithfulness and, and, and lots of descriptors, what you seem to have made very clear is that the foundation, the core, the three things that remain, the only things that count are faith expressing itself through love. And Lord, we know the object of our faith. His name is Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And we know the object of our love. And that should be those around us, beginning with the saints and then and going out and extending into this culture and world around us. And I simply pray, God, that as we stand here or sit here this day, with uh, our eyes on your word and our eyes focused on you, that, that, God, you'd grab our hearts and that, Lord, our lives would truly be ones that exhibit this faith and love that you're so after in our lives. God, as we go to the communion table now, we pray, pray that you receive our worship, that you'd be pleased with this time. May this be a fitting end to our time, our gathered time here together. And we pray these things only and always in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. And the whole church says together, amen.